Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, the podcast where we explore assisted reproductive technology and how it changes and affects our lives and our world. I am Jennifer White, and I am here with my co-host, Ellen Trackman. Hello. And we are, I mean, as I'm sure most people know who, if you've listened to us any amount of time, we are sisters. So it's it's hard for us to talk about small world connections yeah, because that was we, confirmed because we both did one of those uh, DNA tests and I was like, oh yeah, you're totally adopted. And it I, turns out. We are related. She <laughs> totally did spend weeks telling me that I was adopted. I know. And I was really <laughs> sad about it. Weeks, years, oh, yeah. years, many years, Your but whole life. but many recent weeks telling me about <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> but you know, that kind of leads you to think about like connections and what a small world it is and things like that. And so we were talking about small world stories and um, I, I I know Ellen wants to tell hers, but I think hers is better. So I'll, I'll go first because, you know, at least oh. always, always, always lead with the weak and, and close with no. the strong. <laughs> I have, I have so, I have so many. Okay. Here, um, go ahead. Go no. So I, um, when I was in high school, we moved to Virginia from New Mexico. And I got a job working as a coat check girl at a country club, you know, super glamorous job. I literally <laughs> sat and did my homework in a closet when people handed me their coats. It was awesome. <laughs> and this was in the days kind of before internet was really a big thing. And I was writing a letter back to a friend and the lady that brought her coat up asked what I was doing. So I said I was writing a letter home. And so you know, we started talking and she asked where home was. And I said it was in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And she said, oh, she goes, I have family there. And oh. I was like, oh, really? And she goes, yeah, my my niece, I think she's actually your age. Oh, wow. And we got to talking a little bit more. And actually, yes, not only was her niece her age, her niece sat next to me in my English class right before I had moved. Wow. So I knew yeah, her and I still world. know her niece. Right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it was really incredible. So that's my small world story. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's so, it's so true. Um, so I have, a, I mean, there's so many of them, but I will tell you, so one, um, I was studying abroad in Russia and I had gone to St. Petersburg and we were in line for the Hermitage, like the very famous museum. And so I grew up, of course, in New Mexico with you and was going, at the time, I'd been going to, to Berkeley for undergrad. And so the people I were with were also from Berkeley or from UC schools. And um, I'm standing in line with one of my friends and this person behind us, like, oh, we like overhear an American accent. So we're like, oh, hey, where are you from? And he, or no, he asked us where we're from. And we're like, oh, we're from California. And he's like, oh, I'm from New Mexico. And I was like, wait, no, no, no. I'm wait, from New wait, Mexico. Wait, wait, no, no, no. <laughs> wait, wait, no, no. Scratch California. I'm from New Mexico. And like, sure enough, like he knew people from our high school and so small world. But wow. I, I also have a small world story um, about our, our guest today. Ooh. So uh, yes, right? It's a small world for all of us. Uh, so I, so our guest today is Tim Schlesinger, who is an incredible um, attorney and scholar and had, has lots of well-known cases and is, is well, very well respected in this area of law. But um, so I had known him from conferences and seeing him speak and, and meeting him in those in those contexts. But um, I was here in Denver and um, I did. So, I mean, going back, I did debate in high school and I was a policy debater and uh, my spouse on the board of the Denver Urban Debate League. And so we often go and will judge these high school debate tournaments. And so sure enough, I was judging this high school debate tournament. It was a semifinal round and there was three judges. And one of the other judges was a professor at uh, DU, the University of Denver here. And somehow we were chatting before the round started. And she's like, oh, what do you do? And I told her about this, you know, the area of law, assisted reproductive technology. And she's like, oh, I know someone that does that. And um, apparently I was co-judging this round with Tim's ex-girlfriend. So... <laughs> So, so with our guest, ex-girlfriend. Um, but it sounds like, you know, Tim might be a, a heartbreaker, but uh, he sounds like it was very Aww. amicable and they're, they were still friends and things were all like very, you know, they, they had a meaningful friendship after, afterwards. So, so very small world. It is a um, small world. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, without further ado, which I've already kind of introduced our, our speaker and our, our guest today. Um, today we'll be talking about embryos and all the interesting kind of um, 
jurisdiction, uh, sorry, jurisdiction, legislation, and actually uh, we don't talk about legislation. We're talking about cases, case no. law. No, not legislation. <clears throat> yeah, I know. There's yeah, so I much. Know. Okay. But we're talking about case law, um, specifically dealing with what embryos are, as well as this really interesting case that, that Tim was on. So here we go. Welcome, Tim Schlesinger, who is one of the great legal minds in this area of assisted reproductive technology and has worked on some very impressive cases that we'll get into. But before we dive into all of that, Tim, welcome to the show. And if you don't mind telling us your your story of how you got into this area of law. Well, uh, thank you, Ellen. And great legal minds is maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but I'll accept the compliment. Thank you. Um, uh, I, you know, I've been practicing law for a long time. I've been practicing law for 35 years. Oh, you started but, when you were five. That's impressive, uh, that's, right? That's right. So I young. That <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I look like I started when I was five. But um, I, uh, I've actually spent most of my career doing uh, a, a number of different things, but largely doing traditional family law um, for the past 25 to 30 years. And um, I sort of stumbled onto this field, uh, this very, very rewarding field of, uh, of assisted reproduction. Um, I just was at a point in my career when I was really disgusted with just handling divorces day after day, it's a it's a very uh, it's a very emotionally draining area of practice. It's got to be exhausting, yeah. And um, uh, I'm very fortunate. I practice in a in a really terrific firm, and we do pretty high level stuff. But um, I was really looking for something else, and I just started doing some writing. Uh, I I. I uh, read an article about assisted reproduction and I found it interesting. And then I started doing some research and reading about it. And then I wrote my own bar journal article before oh. I had ever handled an assisted reproduction case. Interesting. Wow. So, what was your, tell us about your journal article. Well, it was, uh, I wrote an article in the Missouri bar journal okay. about alternative parenting arrangements. And yeah. really what I was really what my article was about uh, was about having children through assisted reproduction and the legal issues that follow that. Um, nobody had ever written anything about this in Missouri prior to that time. Um, there was nothing in any of our, in any of the books, the, the continuing legal education books that are distributed by the Missouri Bar, nothing about assisted reproduction. Um, and uh, a lawyer read my article and decided that I was the expert and she was going through, she wanted to go through a surrogacy herself. Oh, wow. And there was my first case. That's great. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting lesson for anyone who's an attorney and thinking about getting into this area that, you know, yes, maybe being hired by a firm that does this or something, but that's another way is to do the research and write something and get it out there. And then people start turning to you. It, you know, it is a way, but I actually don't recommend that way to anyone else. <laughs> so because, when that first client came, you're like, oh, yes, no. my because my first client came and I had and and I really had no experience whatsoever. I only, you know, I only knew what I had written and what I had researched. That's not a good way to. That's not a great way to get into this field. But that was, uh, gosh, now that's about eleven years ago. Um, that. Uh, that first surrogacy case came, and it has become surrogacy, surrogacy and assisted reproduction, uh, um, egg donation, embryo donation, um, IVF issues. I have become the bulk of my practice. It's extremely rewarding. I'm helping people to build their families, to create families, to have children in situations where they otherwise wouldn't have, and I love it. I, I, it's. It's been a very, very fortunate and rewarding turn in my career. That's great. How did that first case go? Oh, it was um, uh, it, it was a case that actually was rooted in rural Missouri. Um, <laughs> my better. client was an was a was a lawyer for the military, and so when it came time, so the the surrogate got it, it all went very well. Actually, the surrogate got pregnant, and she and. Um, she gave birth to twins on behalf of my clients. 
Um, but the funny part was when it came time to file the action we needed to file in the court, um, uh, my client, who was a lawyer, went down there uh, rather than me, She because she's she was there and I, I'm here in St. Louis. Um, she uh, used my, uh, my petition uh, uh, and the stuff that I had worked on to appear before the court and try to obtain a judgment. And the judge said, well, you can't do this stuff. And she said to the judge, well, but my lawyer, but, but my lawyer is Tim Schlesinger. He's the expert. <laughs> um, and the judge said, oh, okay, you're right. That is that. The he, uh, no, he, he called, he said, if he's the expert, you have him get his rear end down here and oh. explain it to me. Oh. And how far away were you? Um, that's about, uh, it's about two hours away, but what he, what he actually did, he didn't mean that day. What he allowed me to do was to write him a letter, which was really in the form of a brief explaining why we could do what we were trying to do. And once he got that, he was very nice. He, uh, he actually called me and said, this explains it perfectly. Thank you very much. I'm going to go ahead and grant the judgment. So it That's all worked great. great. Wow. Nice work. Uh, so so I, you were the expert when you just started. That was it, right? That's right. That's right? Pretty funny. Yes. Again, I don't recommend that path to anyone else. Um, well, I imagine you've had a number of really interesting cases, but because we want to focus a lot on embryos, which are this kind of new growing area um, with lots of complications legally, I did want to talk about this this huge case that you're on that is now pretty famous, especially in, in, um, in Missouri. But do you want to, do you want to give the introduction to, um, McQueen v. Gadbury? Sure. Um, I, it's, this is a case that I sort of got involved in deliberately. I was not involved in the case originally. It was just a traditional divorce. Um, but the two lawyers, the, um, late in the case, the two lawyers, uh, discovered that there were these embryos that uh, the parties had formed uh, years earlier and that they were still there, still in storage at a fertility clinic. And they didn't know what to do with them and the parties couldn't agree what to do with them. And all the other issues in the case were one by one being resolved, but this the issue of the, what was going to happen with these embryos wasn't being resolved. Well, the two lawyers... Um, sort of, uh, they, they asked around and discovered that if they, that if someone was going to be able to explain to them the law of law about frozen embryos, it would be me. So the two of them called me and they said, we want to take you to lunch and have you explain, uh, the law of frozen embryos to us. And the two lawyers were the opposing counsel to each other? Yes, they were opposing wow, counsel. Yes, the lawyer amicable. for the wife, the trial lawyer for the wife okay. and the trial lawyer for the husband uh, took me to lunch and I you know, gave them an informal uh, CLE explaining yeah. the law <laughs> of frozen embryos. Um, I did tell them at that lunch, I would really love to be involved in this case and I, I also made it clear, I was trying to be neutral, but I made it clear which side, which side? I wanted. <laughs> um, and so when the case got further along, there's a lot of procedural ups and downs I won't bore anybody with, but but uh, the case got further along and the client called me, the, the husband called me, uh, Justin Gadbury. And he said, all these other issues are probably going to get resolved, but, you know, I... I, we can't agree on what to do with these embryos. Would you represent me? I don't have any money. Always what the lawyer wants. <laughs> Always. Um, the most famous way to do yeah. that, right? Right. And um, so I, you know, it was an important case. And I wanted the law to turn out the right way because turning out the other way would have serious consequences, I felt. So I agreed to take the case. Um, we had a trial. And I, I guess I should back up. So um, Justin and Hasha, that's her nickname, his former wife, Justin and Hasha um, got married. They did not have infertility problems. Justin was in the uh, Army Reserve 
Actually, I guess at the time he was technically on active duty. So he was he he was stationed uh, early in their marriage. He was stationed in uh, at Fort Bragg, I think, in North Carolina, and they decided that they would go ahead and create embryos so that um, in the event they weren't together, they could have children. And then Justin was deployed to Afghanistan. Justin got deployed to Afghanistan. So that's very unusual. Why did they do embryos versus just freezing sperm? sperm. Well, at first, well, I was, I skipped a step. Okay. Um, At first, uh, Hasha convinced Justin to, to donate his sperm and they just froze his sperm. That was the first step they took. Um, while just while, while Justin was deployed in Afghanistan, Hasha convinced him to to sign the uh, consents. <laughs> no, to, to but to have the embryos formed. So he came back. The embryos were formed. Um, uh, but again, no they, inf- no infertility. There must have been something. That there she was just no didn't... infertility. Hasha was ten years older than Justin, and she oh, was concerned about time okay. running out. On I her. see. Okay. Um, so in 1997, their two children were born. And if you're, you know, if anybody on this podcast is wondering why am I giving out what seems like private information, it's all par- part of a published opinion. So it's not private anymore. Not, none of it's confidential. Um, but in any, in any event, in 1997, uh, the Hasha had the embryos implanted and their two children were born. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I've got my decades mixed up in 2007. Um, (laughs) um, so, uh, so those kids are now 12 years old, almost 12 years old. Um, there were four embryos, two were implanted. They had twins, two embryos remained. So there were two embryos that they were thinking about using, but not using. When their doctor retired, um, they transferred embryos to a new storage facility. And so a bunch of consent forms were sent out, which Justin and Hasha filled out and signed at their home. Uh, there was no doctor, no lawyer, except for Hasha, who, oh, Hasha's a lawyer. Who's oh, a lawyer, add. of course. Right, uh, there yes. we go. <laughs> Ooh, um, and what did those consent forms say? Uh, the consent forms said, essentially, that in the event of a divorce, Hasha would get to use the embryos. And did so Justin there's know? That jo- <laughs> did he know so he was signing that? Did he, he sign it? Um, he did sign it. But the circumstances around the signing and the initialing of these critical pages on these, there's about 15 pages of forms and about three pages dealt with the disposition, the potential disposition of these embryos. And there's a page where you're supposed to initial and a page where you sign and a page where your signature is notarized. Well, the spaces that were initial, the places that were initialed, were initialed and dated after they notarized that three-page part of the form. Three-page part of the form was notarized on May 10th, and the initials were were dated uh, May 15th. But were they his initials? Like if you looked at the hand Yeah, they were his initials. And, you know, am I ever going to know whether he, you know, whether he understood what he was signing I'll never know that. I know what he told me. I know what he testified to. I know what she testified to. And he I wasn't did, there. What did he testify that he didn't know he was signing? Well, he that? testified that they never discussed it. That Hasha presented all these papers to him and said, you know, sign here, initial here, sign here, initial here. That they never discussed what would happen with the frozen embryos, or at least that he doesn't recall them ever discussing it. Um, I have to say that's believable. I, you know, I, I find that to be believable but I can't possibly know for sure. I wasn't in their marriage. Um, and did she testify um, that, that they talked about She testified about it that they talked about okay. it. Um, the court, the trial court clearly didn't, there was enough doubt in the trial court's mind. And here's the other thing that, it, that was a little crazy. It, you could barely tell in the documents, but the color of the initials 
was different than the, col- the, the ink color on the initials was different than the ink color on the notarized signature. And it just lent a whole um, aura of doubt as to how these, how this consent form was signed. And people wonder why I make people sign in blue. See, this is why. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, otherwise that would have been a very difficult issue to get over a clear, unambiguous agreement or consent form. I I mean, my position, uh, I don't want to get too legal. My position is that you shouldn't be able to sign a consent form under those circumstances that gives one right, one, one party the right to implant embryos against the wishes of the other party. But um, I was fortunate to have that set of circumstances where the court could say, you know, I'm going to find that there's not the indicia of reliability around the signatures of this form. And I'm going to look at this as if there's no clear, unambiguous written agreement that says what are supposed to happen to these embryos. So that's what the court did. So it's also if, what the Court of Appeals did. If he had witnesses that he talked about it and it was clear he understood it and signed it and in front of a notary, you think this would have been a very different situation? It would have been a, it would have been a different case. I, it's still possible that I could have prevailed, but it would have been much more difficult. It would have been a lot more difficult. Um, I personally think that situation should never come up. If you're going to be, and again, without getting too technical, if two people are going to, if two people are, are going to get married and they have property before their marriage and they want to protect that property, they sign what's called a prenuptial agreement. And there are all kinds of require there, there are all kinds of tests that the court looks at to determine whether or not a prenuptial agreement should be enforced. Um, whether there's been full disclosure and whether it was knowingly and intelligent, whether your rights were knowingly and intelligently waived, um, things like that. Um, if you're gonna have that standard to deal with with a car, or well, not a car, but I mean to deal with bank accounts or real estate or businesses, shouldn't you have at least that standard to deal with? Not more. Uh, that's right, if not more, to deal with something with the lifelong consequences that cryopreserved embryos have. So uh, those were all arguments that I brought uh, in front of the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals accepted my arguments. But anyway, that's the background of that. The, the background of McQueen versus Gadbury is that they were getting a divorce, and she and Hasha, what they had two children from these embryos, and Hasha wanted the embryos to be implanted, and Justin did not want her to implant the embryos. He, the, the two of them, had a very, very. This was not an amicable divorce, mm. not even close. They had a very, very difficult relationship. They had a very difficult time uh, exercising joint custody of their children. Um, uh, Justin did not want to uh, did not want to create a situation where he would be having more children mm-hmm. with his ex-wife, with whom he couldn't even uh, successfully jointly raise the children that they partially raised together. So um, that was that was the dispute. She wanted the embryos to be implanted. She was very passionate about this. She named the embryos. She oh, named wow. them Noah and Genesis. Oh, wow. She created a web page. Um, uh, she had protesters outside the court the first wow. for, for wow. one of the hearings. Um, it was, yeah, it, it was a, it was a big deal. I mean, that sounds very um, somewhat similar to the Sofia Vergara case where right. this where he, superstar he and into, modern family and yeah. he he named the embryos and had this big New York Times article talking about I, I forget their names, like Rose and Sophia or yes. something like that. It is very similar. And it may it, it should shock you, but it but it may not, that Hasha so Hasha's a lawyer. As far as I know, she's got one client. Her client is uh, now I can't think of his first name. Loeb, 
Um, oh, uh, the uh, the fiance for Sofia Vergara. The fiance. Uh, yes. Nick, now I Nick can't Loeb. think. Uh, oh. Nick Loeb. Nick Loeb. No, I Her did client not know is Nick Loeb. She like filed. She filed one of the actions in Louisiana. She's oh. not the one that came up with the wow. the clever but specious idea of creating a trust in Louisiana, so that so that the embryos would have. Uh, Jurisdiction. Uh, re- jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh, the court would have jurisdiction there. But but she subsequently represented him in Louisiana in, some, in the actions that were filed in Louisiana. And for listeners, um, for those who don't know, so Nick Loeb was Sofia Vergara's fiance that they create embryos. And he had the embryos sue her in Louisiana because there is a statute there that says embryos are juridical persons that can sue and be sued. And I think it was the first time embryos had sued someone, right? <laughs> yes, it absolutely but was. In this case, it was, they was dismissed because there wasn't enough jurisdiction. The embryos were in L.A. I mean, in Los Angeles, not Louisiana, and no one lives there. Right. The other L.A., yeah, yes, the other L.A. <laughs> right. Um, uh, but in any event, so so getting back to um, uh, McQueen versus Gadbury, so. Um, we had a trial and there was all this testimony and the court um, held that uh, the the court ruled that the embryos would be jointly awarded to Hasha and Justin, which is what I asked the court to do, and that neither party would be able to implant or convey or transfer the embryos in any way, do anything with the embryos without the written consent of the other. Um, that's what I asked the court to do. That's what the court did. Um, here's the, here's the interesting part. Um, there's a statute in Missouri that says, in essence, life begins at conception. Um, and that's, that's unique, right? Not a lot of states have that. Yes, and that's, very, it is unique. There's, and, there, there are a handful of states that have statutes like that, but, uh, but not very, but, but just a few, uh, three or four states. Um, so, uh, there, the statute, it's a combination of a couple of statutes, and the statute essentially says life begins at conception and um, from the time of conception uh, at every stage of development going forward, the embryo is an unborn person entitled to the rights of any other person in the state of Missouri. And does that mean if you go through IVF, no one can, you can't destroy your own embryos if you have 20 well, embryos? Well, it doesn't mean, now it does not mean that because <laughs> did it, of did queen versus Did Edgar. it mean that uh, before? No, it never meant that. It never that. meant See, here's that. The okay. thing. Here's What's the con- thing. What does it, conception it was mean? Never yeah. inte- it was never intended to mean that Got because it. those statutes were passed in 1988. The first IVF, the first embryo transfer took place in Missouri, according to the chair of the WashU uh, Department of Fertility. He believes he was the first one to do it, and that took place after 1988, after these statutes were passed. I'm impressed that they used a specific language about embryos and zygotes, though. Um, they did. And that is impressive, but <laughs> they were trying to, you know, at the time, this was part of the abortion statute. Right? Mm-hmm. And what they were trying to do was to prevent abortions. Um, they were trying to do it within the context of Roe versus Wade, but uh, hoping that, you know, the legislature that passed this statute was hoping that Roe versus Wade would be overturned at some point and so that their statute could be interpreted more broadly. They were not, I guarantee you, they were not thinking of cryopreserved embryos outside of a person. They weren't thinking of that. But... The existence of that statute in Missouri made this case different than all than any other case that preceded it in you know any place in the United States because it created the first circumstance where they could take the position that the embryo was a person and that the court only had one choice as to what to do with the embryo to award it to her so she could implant. So she could implant them. Um, the, uh, we argued the case in the Court of Appeals, and um, the Court of Appeals agreed with me, with my position, that um, the right to procreate 
is a fundamental constitutional right and that my client's fundamental constitutional, and I'm sorry, I'll back up, the right to procreate and the right not to procreate, these are equal competing constitutional rights. So if these rights are in competition with each other, then what do you do? Well, the Court of Appeals in this case balanced the interests of the parties and uh, ruled that uh, Justin's interest, Justin's right not to procreate would be irrevocably extinguished if he were forced to have children with his ex-wife. But well, her, her, her right is not extinguished. No. Now, her as a right practical matter, is she going to have more children? Well, not now. You know, she's, yeah. uh, let's see, how old would she be now? She's about 45 now. Um, still possible. It's still it's possible. It's unlikely. <laughs> but here's the thing. She had a child while this divorce case was going on. She had a, ch- had a child with somebody else. She was 41 years old. Um, so she has three kids and the court in, in um, and I don't want to misstate the law, but I also don't want to be too technical. Um, the court here essentially, without saying so, essentially adopted what's called the contemporaneous mutual consent approach, which means neither, which means you should not be able to implant embryos uh, unless both parties whose genetics form the embryos agree at the time they're going to be implanted. That's essentially what that means. And that's what you were arguing for? Yes, basically. I wasn't, I wasn't actually trying to use the contemporaneous mutual consent approach technically because it has, there's a lot of criticism of that particular theory. Um, I was really proceeding with a balancing of the interests theory, but the effect of it is a contemporary, the effect of what the court did was to use the contemporaneous mutual consent approach. So going back to the theory, if he had been fully informed, lots of witnesses that he knew exactly what he was doing and signed off that when they divorced, um, he could still change his mind. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Which is quite honestly the way I believe the way it should be. Because you can't, when two people, whether they're married or not married, doesn't matter. When two people are in a relationship and going through the process they go through to to have children, and unlike the case, in unlike my case, where it, it's usually people who've been dealing with infertility for years, my case is very unusual. The circumstances of this case are really unusual in that these people didn't have infertility issues. Um, but usually people have been dealing with infertility for years and their, their emotions are such that it's not reasonable to ask them to make a decision about something that may take place many years in the future after their relationship has ended and uh, what the implications of having additional of having children or additional children in their as in their case would be like. Imagine this. Think think of it this way. Suppose the court had ruled the other way and she had the embryos implanted and had these two children or had two additional children from these embryos. So they've already got two kids they were raising together. Those are the two kids, you know, that are part of the divorce and whose custody was decided in the divorce. Now, suppose after the divorce she has these embryos implanted and has two more children. These embryo that you know, the court would have ruled my client didn't have any responsibility for these children. My client didn't have to pay child support for these children, uh, although that that creates another legal issue. But let's say the court had done that. Um, now, it's, you know, it's time for my client to go pick up his kids for custody. Let's say they've got 50-50 custody. He goes and he picks up the two kids that were raised during the marriage, and he leaves their two full 100% siblings there at the house. Mm-hmm. Imagine how that affects his relationship with the kids that he raised, the kids he ra- helped raise during his marriage. What are they going to think of him? Well, he's the, he's the guy who didn't want our brother and sister or our brothers or sisters. 
Although, I mean, I have to say there, but people do embryo donation. People donate where they're genetically related to a child they don't raise all the time. Although, yes, but I mean, they don't. Really, yeah, but they're not really going more to personal and awkward in that case. But yeah, yeah, it's of of course people donate embryos and they're and. But that's that's a voluntary choice. Mm-hmm. That's a choice they're making. They're not going to pick up. They're not going to pick up siblings at that yeah. at the house where the the uh, child who is the result of their donated embryos is living. They're not doing that. That's never. I you know yeah. I'm not aware of anything like that ever happening. I, I agree that level extra level of awkward makes it m- much more difficult. Well, and it's you know those are these are you know these are not trivial things. This is something that would affect my client's relationship with his children. You know, this and this is where the constitutional right to privacy comes in and where your and and as the Supreme Court has said, there's you know, what can be more fundamental than the decision of whether uh, and when to to have or not have children. So applying that. Do you feel that it's a completely different different story when it comes to an egg donor or a sperm donor that they sign a contract, they can't change their mind, unlike someone who's in a relationship doing IVF for themselves? Yes, I feel it's, yeah, it's totally different. And the reason it's totally different is because the egg donor, the egg donor is entering into a, uh, is entering into a procedure for a specific purpose. She is donating her eggs, and the reason she's donating her eggs is so that people other than her can raise children that she's going to have nothing to do with. That's that's the purpose. When you're go when you're signing consent forms for IVF, you're undertaking a you know you're undertaking a mutual engagement, something you and your partner, your spouse are trying to do together. You want to have a family together. You want to raise children together. That's the purpose of what you're doing. Um, What's going to happen with embryos that are not used is, is really secondary to what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to have children. That's your purpose. That's the only reason you're going through this process. You're trying to have children with your partner, your spouse. What are your thoughts on the few cases that are basically an exception to this pattern? So while a lot of courts have followed this pattern of not ruling in favor of the person who wants to reproduce against the genetic contributor who does not want reproduction or conception to happen, um, they don't always take the approach to the Missouri court. Often there's this other decision where they would follow contracts and they looked at that first. But generally the ruling is not to allow the use of embryos against someone objecting. And there's a couple exceptions to that, um, namely a case in Illinois and a case in Pennsylvania where the woman had no other way to have a biological child. So I'm curious your your thinking on those two cases and if you feel that that's right and that's consistent. Well, it's right if you consider the balancing of the interests. Um, it's interesting. In the case you had in Colorado. Yes, the Rooks uh, case. The Rooks case, where the Colorado Supreme Court uh, recently entered, a de- you know, uh, recently um, set out a decision regarding the disposition of frozen embryos. Yes. You had three justices dissenting in that mm-hmm. case. And the dissenting justices all said there should never be a scenario where you allow, they were all in favor of the contemporaneous mutual consent approach. They all said you should never have a scenario where you've got somebody implanting embryos against the wishes of the other person whose genetics formed those embryos. That should never happen. Right. And that was the dissent though. That was not the decision of the court. Yes. That's not the decision of the court. Um, but I, I, I found that interesting. Um, I, I, I tend to agree with them, um, but I don't, I don't have a gigantic problem with the decisions in the Pennsylvania and the Illinois cases because they're, they're, they both rest on the idea that there's a compelling factual reason um, 
that is specific to that individual case that caused them to allow. Both and in both of those cases, cancer and right. she had no other That's choice right. for fertility. That's right. In the, yeah. And, and especially in the case, the Illinois case, the facts were really, really unusual because in the Illinois case, um, the, the woman who wanted the embryos to be implanted, mm-hmm. she was an emergency room doctor and she was diagnosed with, if I, I think I'm right with ovarian cancer. She delayed her treatment and for the specific right. purpose of uh, going through uh, an egg retrieval so that she could f- have embryos formed. And what she did was she, caught, she had had this on-again, off-again relationship with a guy. And, and uh, at the time this happened, they weren't even dating. They were, they had broken up. Oh, I didn't realize they were dating. I thought they were still dating. No, they were not. No, they were not dating anymore. At the time this happened, she called him up and she said, here's what's happened to me. Please help me. I want to have, Mm -hmm. I want the opportunity to have children. Uh, Let's, you know, let's, uh, will you please donate your sperm so that I can form embryos? Right. And playing into this is that technology has improved so much in just the last few years where now we can cryopreserve embryo, or sorry, eggs by themselves pretty well. But just a few years ago, doctors were all recommending you need embryos to to have a good chance. Right, right. Um, but so this was a really unusual case. And even though there was no written agreement in this case, there was a written agreement that was supposed to be drawn up and it was never completed. Um, but the court ruled that there was a very specific oral agreement in this case that they entered into this arrangement for a very specific purpose and that he couldn't come back after, you know, this was not a couple that was going to raise kids together. Right. This was, you know, she asked him to do this for her and he said yes. And then after the embryos were formed and she wanted to ha- have them implanted, um, he changed his mind. And the court said, given the, given the compelling circumstances in this case and the fact that he, you know, specifically entered into this agreement for this one very specific purpose, this was not like this was not an unanticipated consequence. This was not the normal situation where you form embryos and then they're not used. You, you and then you have extra ones that are left over. This this these embryos were created for this very specific purpose, and he donated his sperm for this very specific purpose. So the court ruled in her favor. So that was um, so that, that was Zavransky versus Dunstan. <laughs> The other Correct. one, the Pennsylvania case, Reba versus Reese, they they were married. They did do IVF for yes. themselves. Yes, and then and then they broke up. They did not have children, and she had a cancer diagnosis. And she testified. The opinion of the court is kind of muddled about this, but but the the actual facts of the case, as you know, as those who've researched it find out, is that she. She did testify that she, you know, was diagnosed with cancer and that she was advised that she would be very, be unlikely to have uh, children genetically related to her, um, except using these embryos Mm -hmm. and the court ruled in her favor. Those are the only two cases where the court has allowed um, a person, and in both cases, it's the woman, um, to implant the embryos uh, against the wishes of the other of the partner who helped create the embryos with his genetics mm-hmm. would be interesting to see what would happen if you had the reverse, which has happened in a couple of cases, but the court hasn't ruled in their favor. Yeah. So suppose it's the man, it's the husband who wants to have the embryos implanted, and the wife who says, no, I don't want, you know, I don't want children born with my eggs. Um, The husband, of course, would have to have a gestational carrier in order to have those embryos implanted or implanted in some future wife or girlfriend. Right. So it creates a whole, that that would create a whole different set of, of issues. But in any event, there have only been these two cases and both of those those cases involve compelling circumstances. To me, one of the interesting issues remaining to be decided is 
what's going to happen the first time you have a clear, unambiguous written agreement and no compelling circumstances. Just, you know, two people, you know, who could have, you know, who could have children otherwise, or she could do this with somebody else, but she wants to use these embryos. There's a compelling written agreement, let's say, that says if they divorce, she gets to use the embryos and she wants to have them implanted and he doesn't want her to. Um, and there aren't any of these compelling circumstances. What would a court do? Several courts that have ruled against the woman implanting embryos have said, if there were an unambiguous written agreement, we would allow her to do this. Mm -hmm. But there hasn't been. So they have had the excuse um, not to not to make that happen. It would be interesting to see if a court ruled that way, would they be fine, you know, what would the constitutional issues be? Well, and along those lines is the Arizona statute. Are you familiar with the statute? Yes, yes, I'm I'm very familiar with the Arizona Arizona statute. So Arizona has a statute that was was passed in 2018 that says if a couple is divorcing and they have cryopreserved embryos, then it is absolutely irrelevant what agreement they might have signed. And even if they were fully informed, completely signed that, you know, no one could ever use them without the other person's consent, the judge must, it's, it's very specific, it must award the embryos to the um, the person who has the greater chance of bringing them to life. Well, to me, that statute has two really obvious constitutional infirmities, and I apologize to the non-lawyers for having <laughs> used that phrase. I'm still following you. It's um, okay. No, I, I hear this. Um, but uh, number one, <laughs> and this is the most obvious one, this statute only applies to married couples. So how can we constitutionally treat married couples, the embryos of married mm. couples, differently than the embryos of non-married couples? That wow. you know that violates at least 40, 50, at, at, at a minimum it violates, <laughs> let's see, 1972. So that would be 47 years of Supreme Court jurisprudence, consistent Supreme Court jurisprudence. Um, uh, that's, that's the, the first and most obvious problem with the statute. The second problem is that it, it is a perfect example of unwarranted governmental intrusion into the private procreational decision-making of individuals. Uh, there's a 1965 Supreme Court case called Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, and coincidentally, that the parties in that case have a kind of distant connection to my wife. Oh, anyway, really? <laughs> um, um, so <clears throat> Griswold versus Connecticut stands for the proposition that the state should not be telling people when they can and cannot have children. That state, that that case was about a uh, statute which made the use of contraceptives illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Supreme Court ruled that that statute was unconstitutional, that it uh, violated the right of privacy of individuals who wanted to use contraceptives. Yeah. Um, there was a 1972 case called Eisenstadt versus Baird, which involved um, uh, which involved a statute that uh, made it okay to distribute contraceptives to married people, but put different requirements for distributing contraceptives to people who were unmarried. Mm. Well, Eisenstadt versus Baird said, and that's, that statute came from Massachusetts, believe it or not, um, uh, well, the, the Supreme Court in Eisenstadt versus Baird said the right of privacy is a fundamental right, whether you're married, unmarried, single, that doesn't, you know, it, your right is not diminished by the fact that you're not married. Um, so I think that the Arizona statute would be declared unconstitutional. I was on a call recently. There's a 
there's a policy group um, that sought my advice on ways to combat that statute. Yeah. And um, is there a plan that can be told what, what they're doing? Well, there's a plan, except that there's really uh, without without really boring the non-lawyers, yeah. there there are standing issues that have to be addressed, right. and and what that means uh, is whether or not th- there's got, somebody actually has to be harmed by the statute yeah. in order to sue to try and have the statute declared. So you're just waiting for that right case so, to happen, and then then you attack. So there's. Uh, I'm sure it won't be me because it's in Arizona. They're going to want Arizona lawyers. They were just, you know, getting advice. Right. From well, I was going to say, um, if an Arizona, you know, a divorce attorney has a situation come up, should we just go ahead and give them your number? Like, you'll. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Perfect. Um, but um, you know, so so, I guarantee when before when that statute when somebody tries to apply that statute in a specific case. Um, then it's going to be challenged. And I don't think it passes constitutional scrutiny. I really don't. I, there, there's a, there was a similar statute they tried to pass in Missouri. It was actually Hasha, uh, Hasha spearheaded oh. this and got a legislator to introduce this bill. And it has been introduced two years in a row. It has not passed. And they, are, they introduced it again last month. Um, and I will go down to Jeff City if necessary and testify again oh. about how it's not constitutional and shouldn't pass. There are there will probably be more efforts like this to pass statutes such as these mm-hmm. until eventually the United States Supreme Court is going to have to rule on whether or not these statutes are constitutional or unconstitutional. And the Rooks, the Rooks case. Which gets us to yes, the Colorado Yes, so we talked about the Rooks case, which came up about, uh, which interestingly, like, some of the facts are very similar to the case to uh, Gad- McQueen v. Gadbury, where they yeah, already had are. children. Right. Um, in fact, during the court process, she had another child, which I thought was in- an interesting parallel between the Oh, that's true in Rooks, yes, too? Yes, it's true in Rooks as well. Yeah. Oh, that well, that that is that's interesting. That's high, that's pretty unusual. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so so our Colorado Supreme Court ruled on it, and um, as you mentioned, the dissent took the approach the Missouri Court of Appeals did, but the the majority took this other approach of first looking to the the contracts, and then if that wasn't clear balancing the interests. And they didn't actually rule for either side. Instead, they said, you know, the, the Court of Appeals didn't look at the right factors and they didn't think it was appropriate to look at kind of her financial situation as well as the number of children they already had. Uh, and instead sent it back to the trial court to reassess based on the proper factors. Didn't but they in have the meantime, like a silly number of kids too? Didn't they already have four children? As well? Yeah, I think well, three. 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 Okay. Yeah. okay. Oh, that's right. The fourth is, was the oh, promised one. That's right. Is, that was what it was. Is four, is four and a silly number Sorry, of children? Sorry, it is a silly is number that, of children. Is that, is that yeah. what you would say? <laughs> yes, it is. Having, it is. Having, <laughs> what crazy person would have four children? That's, that is silly. Very silly. Okay, well, yeah, hmm, telling my kids on you. Uh, <laughs> I'm bringing them Girl Scout but, cookies next week. It'll be fine. <laughs> Oh, good. Okay. That moves everything over. Right. Uh, But in the meantime, a cert petition has been filed with the Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to weigh in. And in that case, they're they're specifically arguing that embryos are persons. Um, So the interesting thing about the about the Rooks case and and the thing that I the thing I like that the uh, Supreme Court opinion said is that they're going to balance the interests of the, the the Supreme Court. First of all, it, of it's important to the Colorado Supreme. note the Supreme Court of Colorado. Sorry, the Supreme Court of Colorado uh, very specifically said that the frozen embryos were marital property of a special character. Following the the decision in that that was the holding in McQueen versus Gadbury, the frozen that cryopreserved embryos or pre embryos, whether you know we can debate what the right term is. Um, uh, are marital property of a special well, I, character. I do have to ask, what, what, what do you think the correct terminology is? I'm just curious. 
I think the correct terminology is pre-embryo. That, so they specifically said that before an embryo is implanted or transferred to a woman's uterus, that um, that that's a pre-embryo. But right. I, you and I, in, in our world, I feel like we just always use the word embryo. We always use the term embryo, um, but that's be- I, I really just think that's because it's convenient. We always say people, that's because the public says frozen embryo. That's right. what that's what everyone calls it. A but you haven't embryo. switched. You haven't started calling them pre-embryos. Um, I I haven't. <laughs> I you know that. what? When I when I'm on the national news again, maybe I'll start calling it pre-embryos. <laughs> and uh, and one of the reasons that might actually be an important distinction is because those who would seek to have embryos, frozen embryos, categorized as persons would say that a pre that pre-embryo is uh, a uh, is an inaccurate distinction that it's an mm. embryo from the time uh, it's a couple days for, as soon as it's no longer a zygote or no longer a uh, as soon as it, it begins dividing Interesting. Um, so I think it I think in that sense in that scientific sense it's an important distinction Um the, it, what's interesting about what the so the Colorado Supreme Court said that that uh, pre-embryos are marital property of a special character, and uh, what it said that the trial court and the court of appeals did wrong, or what the court of appeals did wrong, was that it treated the embryos as if they were just plain property and brought and in the balancing of the interests brought in a, a bunch of factors that would be brought in if you're talking about the division you know the equitable division of property mm-hmm. the the Colorado Supreme Court rightfully said those you know those shouldn't be factors when determining how to dispose of cryopreserved preembryos the balancing of the party's interests should be the balancing of their of their interests in the context of the fact that each of them should have autonomy over their decisions regarding reproduction. Yeah. That's that's what the balancing of interests is that should take place. And I thought that was a a a smart articulation of how you should treat this. So I'm predicting that the U.S. Supreme Court does not hear the cert petition for the Rooks case. Uh, I I agree with you. (laughs) And I think the reason – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, if it did, I'm curious if you think that the current composition of the court would matter or you feel that they would just follow what you've laid out in terms of these clear um, lack of constitutionality arguments. I think that the current composition of the court matters. I do think, however, I can't, you know, see, remember that, you know, remember that we're not talking about a pregnancy. We're not talking about Roe versus Wade. We're talking about principles that are part of the legacy of Roe versus Wade. But it really starts, you know, the, the, the right of privacy and the right of procreational autonomy you know, starts a hundred years ago, um, uh, and the first and the first U.S. Supreme Court case to really talk about about procreational autonomy, and they didn't call it that then, but I but to talk about the right to the right of privacy and how it affects um, how it impacts uh, an individual's ability to procreate or not to procreate. Um, that goes back to 1942. So that's, uh, you know, that's nearly 80 years mm-hmm. of Supreme Court jurisprudence. That's a long time. That's not, you know, this didn't just start happening yesterday. Um, so I, I do think the composition of the Supreme Court matters, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't concerned about it. Um, yeah. But... God, it would, they'd have to ignore a lot. They'd have to ignore a lot of precedent mm-hmm. to find that uh, people don't have the right to decide uh, whether and when they're going to have children. Yeah. Here's the here's the to me the only way 
you can possibly win this argument if you want to have the court decide that an embryo is a person is to say that, uh, excuse me, a, pre, a cryopreserved pre-embryo. Sure. Um, is to say that the parties have already made the decision to procreate, that no one's right to procreate or not to procreate is being impacted because they've made the decision to procreate when they agreed to have the embryos formed. Now, I think that's an illogical argument. And because, that, that is certainly an argument that was the, made early the, on in In Rose. my view, it's the, it's the one, when I was arguing McQueed versus Gadbury in the Court of Appeals, that mm-hmm. was the one strain of argument that concerned me the most. Yeah. Um, well, and, and in Rook, so at, in front of the Court of Appeals, that's what she was arguing in Colorado, that he, Mr. Rooks, had consented when he decided to go through IVF with her, that he had consented to procreation with these embryos and with her. Um, and yeah, and, and that's the, that is also, that's an argument everyone's going to advance whenever they get to the appellate stage. Um, and I've read their petition for writ of cert, and that's an argument they also advance. They advance a lot of other arguments that I think quite right. frankly are, uh, are full of holes. Well, and my concern is if, if the, if the, the Supreme court determined that embryos are person, it seems like we have this new dystopian world of there's a million embryos out there. And I imagine a number of them, no one has any plan of using them. So we need orphan, you know, orphanages for embryos. I I think the consequences of, of making such a determination are so, um, they're so vast. Right. That I, I do think that, that it's unlikely that that's going to happen. I mean, that's the, for people like us who believe in people's unfettered right to fertility treatments, that's the worst case scenario, because that would really, really diminish people's right to, uh, people's ability to undergo fertility treatments. You know, right now when people, people go, and I've never been through IVF, I only know what I've been told, but, uh, you know, I've. I've been studying this area for the last 11 years. And, um, um, of course, when uh, people go in for in vitro fertilization, doctors create, within limits, they create as many viable embryos as they can. Right. And the reason for that is obvious. They want to maximize the opportunity for their clients to become pregnant, for their patients to become pregnant. If we, have a, if we have a world in which an embryo is considered to be a person, that will, that will no longer happen. Doctors are going to be forced to create one or two embryos at a time mm-hmm. so, that we, so that there are never going to be unused embryos. Um, and uh, if you create one or two embryos at a time, I don't know what the right answer to this is statistically, but I'm confident that the statistical probability of success of people going through IVF will go way Incredibly low. You will be preventing couples or single persons sometimes. You will Mm -hmm. be preventing people who want to have children from being able to have children. Right. It's a a terrible result. Not to mention all of the other crazy uh, uh, results, uh, crazy things that would result from that. And I guess, you know, They'd, they'd really, they'd have to overrule Griswold versus Connecticut. They'd have to go back to 1965 and say everything we've done, everything we have said since Griswold versus Connecticut has been wrong. Because right. if you create a situation where now a million embryos are persons, you have now taken away the ability of the people who those embryos belong to, to decide what is going to happen to those embryos. We're not even talking about people who had disputes. We're talking about, you know, couples, married or unmarried. Right, who may be in complete agreement. That are unused, right. Right. that they're not going to use because they've already had two or three children from these right. embryos and they've got and three or four left, let's say. Four would they be a silly number. Four would be a silly number of children to have. Yes, Ellen. Yes. <laughs> yes four would be a silly number. Right? Yes. Even higher, it'd be sillier. No. Yes, no, but 20 children, 30 um, children. So it, the, the, the consequences of such a decision are 
they're they're stark and yes, dystopian. Right. right. Terrible. Tim uh, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise and your thoughts. And I think this has been really fascinating. And I think even those who are non-attorneys can really appreciate that that discussion in terms of the Constitution and how it applies to our fundamental rights in this area. So thank you again. Yeah. You are very thank welcome. You. And I apologize to everyone who listens to this who thinks I used too many legal terms. No, eh, no, you did great. I understood you. You're fine. You very did wonderful. Good. So thank you. <laughs> you. You're both very welcome. Have a great day. Well, thank you to Tim. And hopefully we haven't terrified everyone going through IVF about um, what may or may not happen in terms of what can happen with disputes and cases. I, and I mean, <laughs> you know, area. I, I know, I, I know I've joked to you privately off the air about feeling really stupid about this stuff, but it's like, it really leaves a lot to think about. And I think that's what the important takeaway is, is that you really need to think about these issues and what the, the potential impact could be, you know, throughout your life. Cause you, it could be, you're in a lawsuit for forever and ever and ever with your babies or unborn babies or unborn embryos suing you. <laughs> All kinds of weirdness, but yeah, ho- hopefully nobody who's listening to us uh, is going through that because they have now been at least somewhat educated on what the impacts could be. But if you are, call Tim. He can yeah, help. Yeah, Tim is the expert. But if you want to call us, <laughs> uh, you can reach us at 303 997 one nine zero three, and we always love to hear you know feedback on what people want to hear, and you know we, we even if you call and just be like I want to hear about you know and name your topic, we, we'll see if we can track down a guest. So we just we just love to hear what what people are interested in. So thank you for listening, and thank you for giving us any and all feedback. We really appreciate hearing from people. Thanks. 